Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Carol Gold, who is a professor of philosophy at Florida Atlantic University, where she teaches primarily aesthetics, philosophy of psychiatry, and ancient Greek philosophy, areas in which she publishes widely. Many of her recent publications concern the relation between aesthetics, ethics, and personhood. She is currently completing a book manuscript on true glamour, an unexplored topic in philosophy that stands at the intersection of aesthetics, ethics, and philosophy of psychiatry. Welcome, Carol. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you, Gil. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we start, I have to warn you, Carol, I can pretend to know many things, but philosophy is uh, <laughs> not one of them. Uh, so you may find me spontaneously crumbling into scientific thoughts, and uh, right. you may have to bring me back. <laughs> like, like saving somebody from drowning in unfamiliar waters. Uh, and, and uh, you know, more generally, I have nourished uh, the left side of my brain for 40 years, and now I can begin to hear gentle objections from the right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this would be, uh, this would be quite therapeutic uh, in many ways for me. Uh, having said that, I want to start with one of your earlier papers uh, entitled uh, Towards the Theory of the Aesthetic Properties of Persons. Oh, okay. And uh, in this article, you argue that aesthetics needs to include a theory of the aesthetic properties of persons, which should be an important theme in the study of everyday aesthetics. Traditionally, aesthetic theorists have assumed that aesthetic properties can be predicated on, predicated of artworks and natural things. And the article argues that persons, not merely their bodies, have aesthetic properties and that aesthetic properties of persons require a different ontological analysis. And you say some yeah. examples are uh, of aesthetic properties are glamour, grace of manner, magnetism, charm, and wit. You want to set the stage for uh, the theory of, uh, theory of aesthetic properties of persons? Certainly. Um, I, I will mention one other thing, though, that um, the... Uh, 
another aspect in aesthetics, another um, type of thing to which aesthetic properties have been ascribed yeah. are um, mathematical proofs, logic, you know, logical systems, right. scientific theories or theorem, you know, theorems and um, so, even formulas, some formulas, yeah, you know, formulas. yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I've been told by mathematicians, um, because I have, of course, as a philosopher, I have a background in logic and, um, you know, have um, had discussions with mathematicians about this, um, that, you know, sometimes the, the deciding force between two competing uh, proofs will be an aesthetic one, mm -hmm. you know, elegance, for example, in a theory. Absolutely, um, yeah. And so, you know, it seems that persons have been ignored. And I'm not speaking, I mean, certainly human bodies, especially right now, there's, uh, it's widely discussed. And people, you know, will talk about, you know, how, you know, beauty of persons, that's one thing. And in the Asian tradition, yeah, much more of an emphasis on this, you know, the connection between certain aspects of the, of the human psyche and their character, their, their human human behavior and character and their, the aesthetic element to that. But until very recently, people have not even focused on the body. I mean, except for, well, you know, in terms of the way it's reflected in art, like the mm. proportions, you know, the Greeks with their uh, golden ratio, etc. Well, we mm. too, all that. So, um, <laughs> But, but um, yes, I mean, people, I mean, a person is an embodied being. I mean, yes. I, there's a psyche as well as um, behavior. And we do have ethical properties. And we also have, however, um, in my opinion, aesthetic properties. Mm -hmm. um, and to say otherwise, I think, is to have a very limited concept of the aesthetic and by um, aesthetic, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, it deals with questions of art and beauty mm -hmm. and, and also, well, value judgments that are related to that because you can have negative aesthetic properties as well. Right. Um, but when we consider the complexity of being a person or of defining personhood, which is something I was doing in that article, and I'm actually revising now um, for, um, for this book I'm writing, mm -hmm. um, that um, we see, for example, we, have, we do have um, agency. We have um, certain abilities to create our characters and our lives. Yeah. Um, at least some would say, I mean, there is a concept called moral luck and uh, there's a taxonomy of moral luck. And so some people would say, well, we, we really don't have that kind of capacity for self-actualization because of our environment uh, in which we were nurtured or not nurtured or, yeah. you know, and so forth, other environmental factors or genetic factors and so forth. You know, there's some people, for example, who are born you know, with basically the, um, the you know, kind of um, 
itinerary, pre-written itinerary to become an, an antisocial personality. <laughs> right. you know, it, it is true. I mean, you know, that these things do happen, unfortunately. So, so Carol, but, so when you say aesthetic properties, um, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a larger set. Uh, are, you, are you saying it's a larger set of properties that could be attributed to a person? Uh, because we know what is, you know, generally meant by, let's say, moral or psychological or social properties uh, yeah. of a human being. Uh, but as aesthetic properties, it's a more a broader set of characteristics, right? Well, I would say, um, hmm, I don't know if it's broader. Okay. I think that it, uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, you know, our aesthetic reactions to things seem to be a kind of, I was going to say primitive concept, but that could be taken in the wrong way, <laughs> ambiguous. But I'm in the sense that, you know, there's a certain self-evidence to it that we react to things, not just in terms of morality or in terms of descriptive, but you know, there's there there are values we place on things, and they're not only ethical. Mm-hmm. They have to do with a certain satisfaction or dissatisfaction that we take in observing them. Yeah. And, you know, for example, um, when we observe, uh, say, a painting by Cezanne, whom I happen to like, yeah. uh, or Picasso, um, we um, might uh, have, you know, we have a certain reaction. You can be absolutely overcome. I, I remember once going into the Frick uh, Gallery in New York, and um, suddenly my eye caught a Vermeer painting called The Mistress and Maid. And I, I, my breath was taken away. I mean, mm-hmm. It just captivated me for hours. And what was I responding to? I mean, well, okay, you could say I was responding to the qualities of light. I was looking, how did he do this? You know, and of course, you, you can't quite pin it down. But there are things which cannot be reduced to purely factual properties. Yeah. It's the same thing when we have, uh, to put it in, you know, perhaps more... Um, uh, everyday terms, you know, we might listen to someone's performance. We might listen to two performances by equally talented and well-trained musicians. Okay, two who are equally adept technically, mm-hmm. and yet one has something that the other doesn't. And it isn't just style. It's not just intonation. It's not, you know, it's not technique. But there's something that we get to that's basic, that we can't define further. Mm-hmm. And it's an evaluative concept. It's just as we sometimes uh, see a person performing an action that clearly our reaction to, it goes way beyond the descriptive. Right. Would you agree? Okay, yeah, so yeah. So, so um... it's self-evident. I mean, these sometimes these things are self-evident. Yeah. And many people deny the existence of aesthetic properties for two reasons. One is that they want to deny the fact-value distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is that they don't believe in, in metaphysically in properties. They're w- what would be called nominalists um, right. or um, relativists or, you know, pra- um, well, the pragmatic tradition you know, would say that this is just a category through, you know, our way we happen to articulate our perceptions, but they aren't real. 
Um, so these would be reasons for denying aesthetic properties, speaking very generally. I mean, the literature is vast, as you can imagine, especially since the mid 20th century. Yeah. Um, but uh, so then but, you get to, yeah. to accepting properties, but then many people who are realists about properties as opposed to relativists mm. say that aesthetic properties are fictions. Um, now, I think that what something like beauty or something like um, verbal dexterity, uh, something, you know, things like wit. Right. Uh, these are things that we all recognize. And we also know that they can vary from culture to culture, just as moral judgments can. Right. But yet the meanings, we all still understand what these terms mean. Yeah. So, so you know, you had, you know, you, you had mentioned that so aesthetic properties of objects and um, what you're arguing is that similarly, there are aesthetic properties of persons, uh, but persons also have bodies. And uh, just like we attribute aesthetic properties to objects, uh, we tend to have um, we tend to attribute aesthetic properties to bodies. Right. Which is, you know, probably clearer <laughs> in this context. Well. Yes, and they can yeah. be viewed as objects. You know, we can right. view them also with, you know, we can point to their sense, we can point to the things that we perceive with our senses. Yeah. And they, they seem um, easier to grasp because of that. But when we look at the embodied person, um, of course, the, the embodied person can have subjective aesthetic reactions to the world, at, but that's different than others recognizing them aesthetic properties in that person mm. like we might we might appreciate a person's um ability to view the world and experience the world aesthetically but that's different than the person the sub subjectivity of that person and i think the fact that persons are do have subjectivity and which really is sort of the governing principle of my whole analysis as I'm reworking it now, because what you read was, um, you know, just my original idea <laughs> about it, doodling, yeah. you might say, which I'm now <laughs> in. Um, but uh, the, um, you know, the body is easy to what people today call objectify. Right. And what we consider that, um, reprehensible when that when people are objectified there's i mean at least i would say that most people who are thoughtful about it or who are who have who are kind and compassionate um we think about people who are viewed um and and again the literature on objectification is vast especially since i would say the later part of the 20th century mm -hmm. Um, maybe it's the women's movement and other, um, you know, identity politics and so forth. But, you know, we look at a, when we judge a person in terms of their body and we don't look beyond that, you know, that that's a form of objectification because we are looking at the person and judging the person or the, the body in the same way we might a painting or, a, you know, something we're looking at in nature. I'm looking out right now at... Um, at the beach, um, <laughs> and, you know, um, 
not because I'm at the beach, but because I'm looking <laughs> out my window. I can see it from my window. And um, so, um, the, and you know, it's, it's beautiful because it's um, pretty, mu pretty much unpopulated in this particular area. And it's, um, I mean, you know, it's residential, but you know, it's a fairly quiet area. It's not one of those crowded beaches that you see in the newspaper pictures of Florida. <laughs> 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 you know. right. That's not allowed anymore. <laughs> yes, right. The, the object lesson in, in evil behavior during the <laughs> COVID. Um, not like that. And, and I see, you know, it's really quite beautiful, the color of the water and so forth. But if I look at a human being and I say, oh, you know, quite beautiful, look at the, um, you know, the fineness of the skin or the, um, the uh, proportions of the body or et cetera, what people look at with bodies, um, you know, but when we look at a person who say, you know, there's some people whose bodies have a tautness to them. I mean, they, it doesn't matter what shape they are or size but you know it has to do with the way they move and so forth or they might be graceful mm -hmm. and you know that's something that is i would say you know it, it the boundary of the physical and subjective mm -hmm. so um but you know people they're so different from objects i mean that's why we talk about morality that's why we ascribe to people, um, you know, goodness of character or lack thereof or immaturity. Um, we would, don't say that about uh, an object because objects, they don't, they, they change, but they don't, they, they cannot change from within. They don't have the agency to change themselves. Yeah, so... And so would you say, Carol, um, you know, an aesthetic property of an object is more definable compared to an aesthetic property of, of a person? For example, um, talk about charisma as an aesthetic property. Mm -hmm. um, it is not really purely definable, right? It sort of emerges uh, from the person. Yes, that's right. And as, as you may have noticed I think in my article I talk about that I talk about um, uh, how these aesthetic properties emanate and I think that we can see the effects like something like charisma which I've also been writing about and I've written about um, what's interesting about charisma that I think makes it different from glamour is that I would say it's an imposter of glamour, <laughs> you know? um, but charisma is something where a person has a certain passion that's infectious mm -hmm. and they have the ability to um, infect others with that. And so that what happens is that their passion becomes that of another. Right. Um, and, but, perhaps outside of the context, it's, it's very contextualized. Um, but outside of that context, um, it's simply, uh, the person might be totally undistinguished, I mean, you know, nondescript, mm -hmm. but when they're in a certain uh, realm, say, and I can perhaps, I'm 
One example I think of very clearly are, well, there's certain musicians, you know, who, yeah. whose passion for their instrument becomes almost as noteworthy as their performances. Um, there's a famous cellist um, you may have heard of named Jacqueline Dupre, mm-hmm. um, who, she was a prodigy with a very short, um, very short uh, performance career because she became uh, ill and died young. Mm-hmm. Which okay gave gave her a certain interest, <laughs> I suppose, but um, you know it's a kind of hypnotic power to influence people. Mm. I mean, I can't tell you how many cellists have claimed to have taken up the cello because they heard her play, and she, uh, and even today one hears that, and she hasn't played. I think, ah, uh, I want to say since the late seventies, but. She, there was something about her playing that was absolutely infectious. Mm. You, you can't quite say what it is. You can't quite describe it. You can say that you know she had a full sound. It was her interpretations were were lovely. Um, you know they were passionate. She had a capacity to play with great emotion. Um, technically. Uh, and, and actually, I watched a YouTube of her the other day, um, but um, I won't go off on that, <laughs> except that I noticed that a lot of her technical, uh, her, her technical modes of playing yeah. were things that cellists are usually told not to do when they're studying, <laughs> uh, you know, with her bow hand and so forth. Um, and I thought... You know, it's interesting how she managed to, to, to execute some of these things so perfectly. And, um, but, so charisma has this power to hypnotize others, to draw a kind of attention and fascination to what they are doing, you know, to what fascinates them, what they're passionate about. Right. Where, and, and you see that with teachers, too, a charismatic teacher. And, you know, if you're, if you're lucky in your life, you 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 have one, uh, at least one, mm-hmm. uh, and you become infected by their passion, and sometimes it changes your life. Right. Um, now, with glamour, on the other hand. Yeah, let's I, uh, let's dig a little, little deeper into it. So you had another paper, even earlier paper, Carol's, uh, glamour as an aesthetic property of persons. Yes. Uh, where you you take a deep dive into into glamour. So let's let's talk about talk about that a bit. So you say that human relationships, uh, you know, people are attracted by various qualities and others, intellectual agility, ethical integrity, sexual magnetism, beauty, charisma, and glamour. And some types of attraction involve a more inclusive appreciation of the individual as a complex, unique being. Uh, And so, so glamour, you argue, is sort of a personal quality uh, so, so uh, define what you mean by glamour, and I know that you talk about, you know, uh, true glamour and false glamour as yes, well. So, lay, lay down the foundation for what you mean by glamour. Oh dear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, I think that in contrast to charisma, yeah, glamour doesn't arouse a passion for a pursuit or a subject area or in a mode of knowledge. I think that, um, but it does inspire fascination in the person themselves. Hmm. And it's, um, and I think that there's a certain subjective element to it that's, that emanates, um, that the person emanates. 
Yeah. And that it has to do again with, and this is rather complex. It's what I'm writing on now and trying to work out and, you know, detail. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it has to do with um, a certain um, type of imagination that is projected. And the way I put it in that paper, as I recall, <laughs> a long time ago, excuse me. Um, but the way I put it and, and the way I'm working it out now is that it has to do with a person's ability to, or a person's tendency, let me say, to um, scan a realm of possibilities mm -hmm. within their imagination. And we can't quite access it, but you sense that the person is doing it. And, you know, people often identify glamour with mystery and so forth. It's a dark art. Mm. And, you know, in fact, the word goes back to, well, actually, the, the evolution of the word is very complicated. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. because, and it has, it has several roots, mm. um, not just one. Uh, it's as complicated as the concept, actually. Mm. Um, but... Um, the this idea is that people become fascinated with the person because they can't grasp what that person is mm. thinking or what their the true nature of their responses. Now anybody can conceal their responses to things, and can you know I've seen people do it. I mean we've all been in workplaces where people <laughs> do, it. and sometimes of necessity or you know, for good pragmatic reasons. But there are others that, where there's a certain residue of, um, call it, well, we could call it mystery, um, but I think that what it has to do with is, it, I think it's a kind of adaptive strategy that mm. some people have developed. That's intentional. Well, not intentional, no. I mean, I think that many of the strategies we develop as we navigate through life yeah. are um, not intentional. I think that they might be, at, some might be at the surface of consciousness, but mm. they're not quite conscious. Um, so in this paper, you say, you know, the, the term glamour is ambiguous, uh, and you have noted uh, iconic and seductive. So there could be, you know, sort of two distinct ways of, these are two distinct types of glamours, so to speak, right? Well, there's that, yes. I yeah. mean, when we think of glamour, we think of what, you know, there's certain people who are iconically glamorous. And now, of course, in the age of the internet and social media, um, they've proliferated. But, um, and I, I hate to say it, but, you know, if you think <laughs> of the, if I ask some of my students, you know, what, um, what glamour is, um, they will say, you know, well, someone like um, Lady Gaga or, <laughs> right. and, you know, something, someone like that. And of course, this is a result of, you know, the incredible speed and just um, scope of our, you know, of the way we get information and, and images. Hmm. And that's the kind of false glamour. So uh, that's, in a sense, what I mean by false glamour. You know, these a person who can, you know, use a certain props, mm -hmm. we say, to construct an image. The person with true glamour is not 
constructing the image. Mm. It's, it's, uh... it's a way of being in the world that's unintentional. Um, whether a person is conscious of it, it's not. They, they may, as they perhaps acquire more self-knowledge and maturity. Um, and it's one danger of true glamour. But I think that it's, well, perhaps a danger is that others project fantasies yeah. of that person. And that can have, um, in some cases, catastrophic consequences, but, um, or inconvenient ones. In, other, in others, it's, it's you know, neutral in that respect in terms of its pragmatic value. I, I think, though, that it, um, uh, some people think it's about envy. Um, and or and some people think that it's um, it didn't really exist until modernity mm. that it required a certain well a, a certain access of the many you know with industrialization and the rise of cities and mass culture that the notion of glamour that's when the phenomenon of glamour appeared but I think that it's uh, it's always been there I mean I think that. Um, yeah, it's so, so affect. It's a certain, and and that affect though emanates yeah. from ultimately from the unconscious. Now, I think that when I say that it's something that one develops and without consciousness, you know, you wouldn't say that a child is glamorous. It would <laughs> seem actually somewhat of an abomination. It would, <laughs> morally speaking, to, yeah. to describe a child that way. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. yeah so. So if I understand this correctly, um, uh, Carol, you know, so true glamour, as you say, is sort of an emerging property. Uh, false gl uh, glamour, would you say there is, it's a, it's a bit like uh, the individual is trying to adapt to uh, what he or she is finding in the environment and, and using um, props and other, other stuff that you say uh, to, to, to make it work. Uh, but what I also find very, very clear in terms of definition is between charisma and, and glamour, right? Mm -hmm. Charisma and true glamour. So you say charismatic musician makes us feel the power and excitement of the music performed. That's right. Uh, whereas a glamour, in contrast, impels us to try to understand its possessor rather than the person's motivating passion. So that's a very distinct difference between the two, right? Yes, I mean, that's, uh, that's everything. Um, well, I won't yeah. say everything, but, you know, that's, um, that's a, a major difference. And, um, you know, it can take different forms, just as charisma can. Um, there are people, I, I mean, who's, you, you look at and you, you're fascinated right away. Um, sometimes a person speaks and you become fascinated or doesn't speak. <laughs> and... Uh, so yes, I, I think that that's that's right. And um, in that article, I speak about you know constructing a world and living in a world because um, you know somebody can can sort of make themselves an artifact. Yeah. If you see what I mean, and and other times the person is just living a certain way, and. They are, but you're not with the, what, one of the things about glamour is that you can't quite know entirely what it is 
to their world, the world in which they're living. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. And I think that I think that for certain personality types, it is a kind of adaptive strategy mm. that people develop. Um, yeah, I can. I through couldn't time, through the actualization of their, um, you know, their tendencies or capacities and and you don't even have to know what realm of society what stratum of society they're in what profession or what what they do um what their talents are it's uh it's utterly different yeah you know when i was reading through your paper cal you know i couldn't uh help thinking about uh politicians on national stage i wouldn't mention any names uh, you, you have, you know, charismatic politicians, you have glamorous ones, both true and false, in, yeah. uh, in full display every day on TV. And so th- this, this may not be a hard concept for your students to understand. No, I think that once it's um, perhaps analyzed, yeah. it, it's, um, you know, people grasp it. I mean, people can't, well, not, not everybody though agreed with me <laughs> about that, but um, which perhaps was one of my motivations for writing it. Um, but also because I think that it's simply an aspect of human life that's been ignored and it's been ignored even at a time in philosophy mm. when um, there's a powerful movement of what's called everyday aesthetics. Yeah. And this has emerged partly from globalization because, you know, in many cultures, um, the aesthetics of just living from day to day uh, are quite salient. Like in Japan, for mm. example, you know, Japanese aesthetics, um, where, uh, you know, they recognize the connection between life and aesthetic experience, and it's extremely important to them. Um, but with um, t- today, uh, with everyday aesthetics, and we have environmental aesthetics, so mm. that's also part of it. Um, and but still, people think of glamour as somehow too, perhaps too vulgar. And I think it's because they're thinking of false glamour. Right. And there is this other phenomenon. So, uh, so I'm not sure that it's easy to grasp. I'm not sure people really grasp. Mm. Um, are we losing? Uh, <laughs> let me ask you this: uh, If you if you do sort of a longitudinal study, my science, my left brain is crying to kick back into this discussion. If you do some kind of a longitudinal study, Cal, would you would you say the true glamour is declining or being replaced by false glamour? Well, actually, one of the chapters in my book is called "The Eclipse of True Glamour," and. <laughs> So I would say yes, definitely, because it's concealed. And it also has a lot to do with the way we, contemporary society, in contemporary society, with um, the internet and the globalized economy, both of which have some, have had wonderful effects, but also nefarious. Yeah. And so I would say that yes, absolutely. Um, we can't recognize it, first of all, because we're bombarded with images of false glamour. Mm. And even, <laughs> you know, even someone like me, I mean, I don't even, um, or I try not to um, 
spend so, too much time looking at such things, but they're unavoidable. Yeah. That, our world. And also, I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of one, um, I think, very fruitful cross fertilization amongst cultures um, that, you know, has produced a lot of interesting styles in the arts and, and, and human life and interiors and, you know, architecture and so forth. But I think that on a personal level, it's, um, you know, people have, it's made it very easy for people to adopt disguises. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually think that aside from the obvious um, problems with social media um, and the internet, some of the obvious ones, meaning that <laughs> and, and people, you know, yeah. get, uh, you know, you know, spied upon and stalked even worse. Um, all of those things are a problem. But I think that, um, yes, I do think that false glamour has taken over. And it's, I don't say, I wouldn't never, I would never say that it's um, obliterated true glamour, but I do think it's concealed it. Yeah. And eclipsing it. I think that we're less likely to experience it. And the problem is that we're less likely to scrutinize other people in the same way and to experience them. I think that it's totally diluted our sense of the world and our sense of the human scene and our sense of the human being as other and as a, of a subjectivity that we want to explore and get to know and a subject of fascination, which I think it always has been. I mean, if we look at literature and philosophy and even science, you know, mm. from throughout the history, I mean, that we see that that's something that has always been a subject of fascination. But it's becoming less so because the image is so much easier to absorb. Yeah, it's also it could also be a bias of our generation, uh, possibly, right? So, we we sort of look back and say this is how the the world used to be, uh, and there are certain properties, characteristics that we find comforting, but that's not the case for the next one. So, so I often wondered, you know, the the characteristics that we we sort of. Uh, try to impose uh, may not be uh, may not be really uh, applicable for the next generation. Well, they might not be, but I think that what I think is that it's unfortunate yeah. because um, the pace at which they experience the world makes it harder for them to experience it deeply, and that goes. And when I say the world, yeah, I'm saying also um, the human world. The, the world of of other people, um, the world of interacting with other people, hmm. because it's made it easy for human interactions to be superficial. I mean, that's always been a problem. Um, you know, you uh, you know, if you even look, go back to Homer, um, uh, it was uh, a woman's beauty or sexual charisma or whatever it was. Hmm. that launched a thousand ships and cost you know, <laughs> thousands of lives. Um, but, um, you know, we have, um, 
I, if, in the Glamour article that you mentioned, the old one, yeah. from, um, the, you know, I, I talk about a distinction that the great philosopher Arthur Danto makes. Mm -hmm. And um, he talks about manifesting a self and expressing a self. Mm. And, you know, he says that one manifests a self, as I recall, he says it this way, <laughs> by living in the world the way you find it, the way one finds it. And so you don't have any responsibility for creating it. Mm. Um, whereas um, an expression of itself, so, so manifestation of the self is... Um, clearly determined by you know you're you're projecting yourself as one who lives in the actual world mm -hmm. in the other case um it's a person who is projecting the world as they see it right you know or as they imagine it you know and it, it's much more interesting you mm -hmm. know you find people like that um, and you can see it in certain artists who, um, who, you know, manifest a world as they find it. Um, you know, they're appealing. They tend to be commercially successful. Sometimes, some of them um, produce works that are incredibly expensive. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, expressing a world has to do with something. Um, in manifesting a world, um, they're very different. So when you express a world, you're, in a sense, ex um, you're expressing a self that um, is original. Yeah. Not as dependent upon that. So there's something, I think it's partly that there's a kind of originality that we sense but that we can't describe conclusively. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's, um, you know, uh, I keep thinking that, um, you know, as, as, you know, this might be interesting uh, for your book as well. So there's sort of a, a, a cultural feedback to this, these characteristics, right? Uh, and, they, they they sort of circular in the sense that the culture uh, shapes it and the and the person shapes the culture. Mm -hmm. It goes on and on like that. Yes. And the end point of that is is highly uncertain, right? You can't really predict what's going to happen. And so, at any point in time, you say, "I take a cross section of the culture and I look at these characteristics of society or or individuals in it." Uh, and every time I do that, I'm going to find different answers. And and like you say, I think uh, when those changes are really fast, it, it becomes really difficult to live in almost. Well, it does. To, or to, to live, I think, with an authenticity. I think that's one of the problems that we have in grasping and, and really appreciating the aesthetic properties of persons and particularly things like uh, like glamour. Um, true glamour, because um, it does require a kind of probing uh, within, I mean, oneself, one, uh, perceiving differently, um, interacting differently. But yes, you're right. I mean, certainly um, uh, 
expressing a self is going to be, um, you know, in part determined by the interaction with the culture. I mean, the yeah. way the self one expresses, say you have a, a glamorous person who's expressing a self that we somehow intuitively know is interesting or, mm. you know, that's where the mystery comes in. And, you know, obviously it's going to um, be expressed differently in different societies. Right. Just, as, just with language. I mean, some people have a fluency with language or a dexterity with language that is awe-inspiring. But that's going to be partly the way it's expressed, <laughs> partly determined by the language they speak, um, the culture in which they live, um, their native language, um, perhaps as it's, um, as it, uh, as they take, as it takes root in another culture, you know, in the, the person who, who sees the world with complexity because of the complexity of their linguistic resources. Um, but so some of these things are determined by culture and one's where one is rooted in culture and history. Yeah. And uh, some of it, but, but the point is that there's a certain kind of, you, you know, imaginative originality that makes you fascinated by a person. And it's not based upon um, these, you know, the, the physicality or the, the costume, the the mask. Mm. Yeah, I, I see also, Carol, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I see a connection to materialize, materialism too, right? So the, the more uh, material uh, your objective function is, you know, the more you're attracted to it, um, the, the more you're going to, uh, going to focus on sort of attention to yourself and mm. attention to the objects as opposed to attention to the content of the craft, right, of the person. Yeah. And so, so there is a connection there too, and, and we can measure that. In what way? Uh, so materialism, uh, there should be metrics, you know, we could look at, right? So we could, we could ask people why, how they, you know, given 10 different things, mm-hmm. how do you prioritize those 10 things? Oh, I and I would imagine it will change over time. Yes, of course. Of course they would. Um, I agree with that. Um, but, you know, I think though that this, this problem or this, this phenomenon that I'm discussing, yeah. um, we can actually trace it back to Socrates. In fact, I think that perhaps I may have gotten this idea partly from that and partly from some of the reading I do in psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, uh, which I which I take seriously, um, yeah. but it, the um, you know Socrates was this person who had a, he definitely had charisma, and he definitely had a sort of glamour to him. Although he was notoriously ugly, by the way, mm-hmm. um, and he was um, he was poor, and yet here he was. He was one of the most powerful people in Athens. He was so powerful that they had to put him to death. Mm-hmm. You know his political political foes, some. Yeah. and you know what is it that people found so enticing about him? Not just his philosophical dialogue. And I'm, when I talk about Socrates, I should say 
I'm talking about the Socrates we find in Plato because we really, he, ne he didn't write anything. We don't know that much about him. We just have three different writers who have, mm -hmm. who have written about him and they all give us a different Socrates. <laughs> so, you know, of people who knew him, um, you know, Xenophon and Aristophanes and then there's Plato. Yeah. So the Platonic Socrates is the most complex and the most interesting and <clears throat> had a, had perhaps the most um, intricate and complex philosophical picture of the world and certainly of the human world. But as you know, he was noted for his <clears throat> method and his method could be very vicious. <laughs> People speak of it with such, uh, with, with such admiration and loftiness but he he would he liked to humiliate people, um, and you know, and the more publicly the better. But he was um, you know, but clearly he wanted to show people the dangers, as you would say, the, the dangers of ignorance. And his <laughs> ignorance was not just not knowing facts. He thought right. he thought that information was quite different from real intelligence and or what one might call wisdom. Uh, it's translated as such, but you know he, he does mean something quite different. Mm -hmm. um, but he he's speaking about something that's difficult to acquire, but certainly possible. But so here he was. He was in this culture that what virtually worshipped physical beauty, mm -hmm. and he did not even come close to meeting the standards of his culture. Right. And they also liked wealth, even though. The democracy in principle was an attempt to um, equalize the classes, to level the hierarchy, you know, hierarchical structure um, mm. that had existed prior to that. It was it was an incredible experiment, if you think about it, wasn't it, at that time? Mm. You know, I guess it has been at any time. Um, but it's, um, and I know that you're interested in the democracy from yeah. your blog, um, that... Uh, you know, so here he was, and people sought him out. Some of the most handsome men in Athens, um, and I say this not because, and you know, they were heterosexual for the most part, but the customs of that day mm. were very different. They, I mean, my this is always one of the first things my students want to know when I'm trying to talk about theoretical matters in, in Greek philosophy. <laughs> well, no, it's not that, but that, you know, that was just part of their, the nat the sort of cultural social development of a male, which right. was different from uh, a female child uh, at a certain age. They were taken under the wing or sort of linked up with someone who was a little more mature, um, but they did have relationships with men. Um, they weren't fully erotic in the sense that we think about them, but I'm not going to touch that here. <laughs> we won't go there. Um, but, and again, the literature on that is fast too, since I would say that goes back. Yeah, I, I want to connect this to uh, one of your, uh, one of your uh, articles, uh, Carol. Oh, so, one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so beauty is objective. Uh, so uh -huh. you say, when we say that a poem or a painting is beautiful, you're making a value judgment. Uh, many people insist that value judgments are simply a matter of subjective opinion because they find value in things that we find pleasurable or that serve our interests. Contrary to popular yeah. opinion, at least some judgments of beauty 
despite being value judgments you say are objectively true mm-hmm. um let's talk about that why, why why do you why do you think there is an objectivity to to beauty wow um <laughs> here we go <laughs> um well i think that as i is one of the things that i i think in in here actually this is a platonic concept that beauty is subjective i think that you know first of all we can look across cultures and there are certain similarities but i'm not that's not my baby like i'm a philosopher not an empirical hmm. researcher um but i also think that the concept of beauty we couldn't even discuss it if it weren't something real um and also i do think that there are aesthetic properties for a variety of reasons complexities mm-hmm. and i maybe you also read my rebuttal to the relativist there yeah i did yeah uh, yeah so the um uh there are certain kinds of however it's played out you know there are certain kinds of things that we recognize immediately mm. as self-evidently pleasing and, and not that the pleasing is the same as the beautiful but and that goes back to the aesthetic properties of persons as well just as we can see sometimes we see a person's character is beautiful which is um different than you know seeing an, an artwork is beautiful or something like that but there there's simply something self-evident about it and i think that if we look to mathematics as we were talking about before mm-hmm. that might be one of the best examples yes um, you know there's certain elegance a certain interest a certain variety and originality in s- some proofs and i think that's true in logic as well logical proofs and and the glamour article as i recall cuz as i said that was a while ago but as i recall i talk about anselm's ontological argument mm-hmm. which i think is has a kind of glamour to it and and wittgenstein the philosopher wittgenstein was uh credited with <laughs> describing as glamorous he's thinking of a proof that had false glamour to him um cantor's theorem and you know he says that it, it has a glamour that made well he's quoted as having said that um, yes. by by a fictional uh, by a writer of fiction though um but still he he was known to have said something like that that it was could be which people um you know there there is something about you know a kind of variety and uniformity and tautness elegance conciseness that yeah. we react to so intuitively i mean it's rational i mean that's how as i said if we go back to this idea about mathematics right it's clear that um yeah so we value it, you know sort of simplicity and elegance right well that, that, we do, yes yeah there's a neuroscience neuroscience basis to this also there was a hypothesis carol that says um the mind perceives beauty whether it's mathematics or faces or whatever objects you want to think about uh as a function of how much processing power it has to do so so the least amount of processing it needs to do mm-hmm. the more beautiful it will consider that to be <laughs> yes uh, it's actually yeah. that's a it, Uh, no i was um thinking about that it it's, it's clearly true in um 
again, in conceptual thinking, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it goes to math, you know, it goes to, so that, that's why people used to think symmetry, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, symmetry is a characteristic, but more foundationally, it's basically the, the brain saying, yeah, I can, I can figure this out very quickly. So I don't, I don't need to waste too many cycles uh, of computing time. Well, actually, symmetry is it's interesting because in Japanese aesthetics, um, asymmetry is valued. Mm, that's symmetry interesting. Is, yeah. <laughs> symmetry is considered um, unimaginative, boring. <laughs> What's okay. interesting? No, and I'm, in fact, I'm uh, one of the things that I've written about is some um, philosopher, a Japanese philosopher in the early 20th century who studied in France and went back to Japan and he was an expert on Bergson mm -hmm. and um, he wrote about he and he can he draws an invidious comparison between the Japanese aesthetic and um, the French or you know we might say European Western European at that time yes um, precisely because there was no mystery to it <laughs> uh, and there was a kind of vulgarity and obviousness to it and some might say the same about symmetry so i don't know i think that when we try to to define it in these ways um you know in terms of um say for example symmetry um something that we don't have to process at great length um that that um that that's a cultural prejudice mm. and I, I do, I think, <laughs> and I think that, um, that there's something, I mean, yes, and I think that even, I'm not sure about this, you know, there's a whole field called neuroaesthetics. Yeah. Perhaps you're familiar with, and, you know, is it more appealing because we can process it easily, or is it more appealing because we recognize so clearly a certain elegance in a theory or even in something, you know, that's asymmetrical, but, you know, something that's uh, an essay that's written with the most information, but with the fewest words. Hmm. I, I don't know much about it, Carol. So my, my, uh, yeah, my intuition would be to say, you know, the objective functions humans have remain to be somewhat crude for 50,000 years. It hasn't really changed. Mm -hmm. You know, it needs a certain amount of energy. It needs to perpetuate its genes. It has given an allotment of time. And so I don't believe humans have changed much. Um, you know, so from a brain perspective, um, I, would, I would think that it's more about mechanics uh, other than well, anything else. Yeah. Well, may I ask you this? Yeah. Um, do you think that um, because something is valued widely or appreciated widely and easily, that it has more aesthetic value than something that isn't? Yeah, so I, I was thinking about this, Carol. Um, so, you know, so suppose I, I am interested in an object, let's say, for whatever reason, right? Not beauty per se, but I'm just interested in it. Maybe it's the color, maybe it's the shape, whatever it is. And then I say, I'm going to study it. Uh, at that point, I'm kind of kicking off a, a feedback loop that ultimately might end up 
with the with the concept of beauty in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe I start observing a picture, a painting, just because I was I'm just making this up, just because I was interested in the frame, you know. Yeah. And then I started looking at it, and then I started, you know, thinking that it's beautiful, right? Uh, so is it sort of a reinforcing mechanism that is not just a one act? Uh, condition, uh, but really something that goes back and forth, ultimately resulting in this idea of beauty. Well, perhaps, yes, perhaps, I think so. Yeah, there's a what is called in philosophy of science a looping effect. Yeah. Um, but it's um, I the reason I, I I ask you, and I I think it's you, you know you've asked some provocative questions, um, and perhaps I dodged the, the <laughs> question about beauty. But you were saying before, when we were talking about glamour, you asked me whether I thought that, um, you know, that the current, the the pace of current society was making glamour disappear. But the fact that we can perceive something quickly, I mean, Mm. it would seem to suggest then uh, was would make it harder for us to have genuine appreciation of something. And I would say intellectually or aesthetically. Right. Um, and I, that was what you seem to be suggesting as well. So, that, yeah. So that is, uh, that has uh, societal implications, right? So if that is true, if everything is getting sped up and by definition, you need, a, you need more time. I think that's what you're saying. You need more time to really appreciate, let's say, beauty, then at some point you won't have that time and hence you might actually lose the concept of beauty at some point in the future. Well, you can certainly, it it certainly becomes diluted and perhaps vulgarized, um, which again, has probably happened in every society because you know, you're right. There's some things that are just easier to think about, to look at. Um, there are things that um, when you're first learning them, if you really want to understand them, it, it can take it, you know, the, the time it takes is just overwhelming. It consu- it's, consumes, you know, vast hours of your day. Mm-hmm. But then... Um, once you get it, it doesn't take a lot of time. Right. And I'm thinking here of things like, you know, advanced logic that, um, or mathematics, sciences, the kind of thing that you do <laughs> um, that is uh, in a different area. That, um, that, that's easy. <laughs> that's easy? Oh, okay. It's actually charisma, glamour, beauty. Those types of things are much more difficult. Uh, I believe uh, to to understand, to define, uh, to to analyze, um, and that that makes it you know um, really interesting to study. Uh, Kel, I want to I want to jump into one other area that I think you are you're working on as we speak, and that is uh, psychoanalysis, imagination, and imaginative resistance. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. And I find that really interesting as well, that uh, so in, in, in a common man's terms, if you, if you are reading a, a horror novel, 
uh, at some point your brain stops and says, I want to stop this and get out of it, right? So sort of resisting the idea that you can enter an imaginative world and participate or really internalize that. Um, and that, that happens. So there are some reasons why that happens, right? I think so. Although I think that it some in some cases um, we get so lost in a world regardless of its horrors. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, but you could get conditioned. Atrocities. You can get conditioned, but if yeah. something is is so beautifully constructed or compelling, uh, you become so absorbed that you don't break from it imaginatively. You know, you're you're so immersed in it with your imagination. Um, so I think that there are different reasons, but yes, I do think that people resist certain things, both within their own psyches and outside of their psyches. And, you know, this goes back to something you wrote about with, with ignorance. (laughs) Um, it, it, no, I, I do think it's true because we, it's very easy to, um, turn away from to resist um, mm. in our moral imaginations things that happen um, we we're seeing it right now with this pandemic um, a certain you know I think there's certain moral atrocities that are committed in in healthcare um, <clears throat> mm. and not just with the pandemic I should say in other ways too like when um, people's uh, when someone's will is dismissed as unimportant, yes, as you know, a, a healthcare professional might want <laughs> to um, protect themselves. I mean, some of, there's terrible suffering that goes on at the, with, for people at the hands of others, not just in healthcare. But I mean, I'm thinking about the pandemic, and you know, the person who who, without the mask, who rides the bus, and then, you know, mm-hmm. there, that would be just one example. But sometimes it's much easier to shut off, to just hear it intellectually yeah. and close our, our minds to it, not engage our moral imagination, which is a form of imagination. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I talked about in that article, that not at length, but I, I think that it's true, is that What's considered egregious in one culture might not in another. Um, so, a, a work might, uh, you know, and not just because of, um, not that it means it's right, but it's just that people become immured to things. Mm. Um, you know. Yeah, I, I was, you know, uh, sort of thinking. Uh, I was thinking in terms of an individual, but this is actually more broadly applicable for society and culture too. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, is an individual sort of an accumulation of repressed thoughts, you know, a vast collection of experiences from the past Mm -hmm. repressed into the unconscious container, let's say. And then, you know, the individual basically let out a small part of it into the, into the open for the world to see. That's what, that's what the world believes the individual is, uh, but really, you know, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Now, you could, you could actually think about this in the societal 
context, right? So the society is also an accumulation of repressed thoughts. And what measurements we can take in public uh, is really a small part of that, I think. Ah, that's fascinating, Gil. And I think that you're, that you're absolutely right. That the, That's a very good analogy about the way we construct our historical memory, if that's what you're talking about. Yeah. We construct our, our cultural identities. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, it's, it's memories, but it's also from your article. You know, I was thinking about repressed thoughts, meaning I am finding a way information in the unconscious container now, you know it is an unco- it's a, it's not an intentional activity but it's a it's a sort of a mechanistic activity right yes. and it, it it is there it's all there you know from <laughs> from a hardware perspective we know once it gets into the long-term memory it's not going to escape from it mm-hmm. and so so you know an individual then is what we see of an individual is really a very small part of that, right? Uh, There's a huge amount of, uh, I don't know what's the right term for that, uh, baggage (laughs) there, so to speak, right? Uh, So does society uh, in many ways, right? So, so I don't know, I don't know, uh, you know, how to, how to think about this, but it has policy implications. You know, you talked about, um, elections and democracy, the systems that we have devised, um, really taking measurements of the obvious, uh, measurements uh, of what the world can see. Uh, If you believe that it's only a small part of uh, what we are about, then those measurements can really be um, representative of what we all believe. I think you're right, that's right. Um, it, it it can't be because, of course, culture and cultures have uh, constructed identities just yes. as human beings do. Um, for example, we're seeing now with these um, statues and these monuments that are being destroyed, mm-hmm. not just in this country, but elsewhere, <clears throat> to people who were recognized now as, you know, in some way... Um, moral abominations um you know what i'm talking about yeah 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 coming down and so forth um and that's almost a kind of (laughs) yeah you might say it's analogous to not really the same as but it's analogous to a psychoanalytic breakthrough in in an individual is that what you mean that's exactly what i mean yeah so that's that's a very good example and so so would you say carol from your expertise then when you have these types of, let's call it revolution, I don't know what the right term might be, um, you know, society sort of letting out uh, of, of its, um, let's call it repressed memories and thoughts, uh, those would be sort of sudden, right, as we have seen most recently. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we think about policy more from a gradual perspective, you know, to, to make things better, yeah. But if you, know, if you have these types of events, then you can really have the status quo as designed, I think. No, that's right. That's right. We have to see it as a dynamic entity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Carol, we could, we could go on for hours on this. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, yeah, thanks so much, uh, so much for spending time with me. And uh, oh, my pleasure. Yeah, good luck with your research, and I would love to love to read your book when it comes out. What what is it uh, called again? Well, right now um, that's been being negotiated. Okay. <clears throat> but it's probably going to talk about something like, I mean, the publisher wants it to be mainly about titled about glamour, you know. Yeah. So it might it might just be called true glamour or something like that. Okay. But I'm not I'm not sure yet. I wanted it initially a different title, but or true glamour in personhood or something like that. Um, because there's a lot of detail about, I have a, one chapter in which there's a great deal of detail about personhood and, and why the aesthetics of persons are so different than the aesthetics of <clears throat> anything else. So, but yes, I would love to talk with you more sometime, Gil, and I so appreciate your having invited me. Absolutely. I, Really, it's a compliment, so. Absolutely, thanks so much, Carol, keep safe. Yes, you too, Gil. Thank you, bye. Bye-bye.